Hey homies, this is Sarah. And I'm Ashley. And this is Hometown Homicide. lot of things to talk about today. I'm very excited. But first, we need to address the great loss that we had last week. Betty White. I know it's nothing true crime, but I was so sad. I actually cried. Like, and I cried I did a lot. too. I cried a lot. I did too. I just couldn't. I was like, oh my god. I don't think, I don't know if Ashley knows. So that's why I texted you. <laughs> And when you sent me that message, I'm like, oh, God, what happened? Oh, my God, did murder with my husband tell you that they listened? Oh, God. (laughs) And then you told me that. I was like, oh. So I, of course, looked it up. Not that I didn't believe you. Oh, I had to look it up, too. When Jay told me, I was like, "Mm, I need to Google this and make sure there's more than one source saying it. It's very sad. It was. she, She lived a good life, but, you know, I think... She's reunited with her one and only true love. Yep. And the fact and the that rest she of the golden girls never had any kids. Yeah. So she was America's grandmother. Yep. I forgot she was in Lake Placid. I had to watch that the other night when I saw someone put it on Facebook. I was like, "Oh my god, that's right." She says cocksuckers in it. <laughs> it's just like she was what? great. That's silly. She was great. There's so many videos that are being shared mm-hmm. with her, like, behind the scenes from the proposal. Yeah. Did you see that one where her and Ryan, Ryan Reynolds Like, are don't doing... like each other. Like yeah. She, yeah. I saw that one. I've seen that before, but it was just kind of nice to see it again. But, yeah. Also, to, before we start, I, if you saw my tweet <laughs> or even my our story on Instagram where I said having a podcast about murder still <laughs> doesn't prepare you didn't prepare me for an actual murderer messaging me uh, which I said I'd explain I cannot get into too much detail because <laughs> and if you want to hear I guess we could do an episode on Patreon because I just don't want everyone to listen to this, but because I'm too close, I'm too close to this and this person who I will not name in case he is listening, which I would hope not. I don't know, man. I, I knew him. I was friends with him. I worked with him. He did take a life and that life happened to be my cousin's stepdaughter. He took her life with his hands. He was only convicted for five years, which is ridiculous. The whole situation, I listened, the trial is public. It was public. Mm. The news was there every single day. They live tweeted it. If I find something, I will tweet it out so you can see. I don't want to, again, say his name. Yeah. Because he did message me on Facebook Messenger. His name came across my notifications and i froze i was like what like it can't be him 
he's still in prison. Nope, he was released on the 3rd of January. So he's been out. He said, want to talk? I It took a while to respond because I didn't know what to say. Oh, you did respond, though? I did. All I said was, about what? Aren't you still locked up? He responded saying, I'll take that as a no. Take care. Blocked me. Hmm. Fine. I, I mean, I never want to talk to you again. Right. I mean, you were my friend, but you took a life. Mm-hmm. You took two little girls' mother away from them. You've caused a lot of heartache on my family. Yeah. I don't feel comfortable with him being out. He is a very, very aggressive person. He used to tell me how he would get in fights all the time at the bar. And and yeah. I have my own opinions about this person. And I feel like I would put my opinion into it too much just because of the trauma he caused my family, mm-hmm. what I witnessed. And I was there the day that he was sentenced in the courtroom. Mm. I mean, it was good he got sentenced to the full amount, but the fact that it was max was five years. He didn't even serve a full five, though, he? Did didn't, he? no. It was only, not. like, what, two and a half or something? Someone had put on Facebook that he served... It was, like, 800 and some days yeah. or something. Yeah, I saw and that. And the balls that he had to reach out to me. Yeah. Well, I almost wondered if it was some sick, twisted thing in his head. Like, if he looked you up, does he know that you're doing this podcast stuff? And he's like, hey, maybe she would want to talk. I don't... I mean, I don't know. It was a brand new account because it said account, the Facebook account was new. Oh, I suppose that's true. And It was just weird that he didn't say, oh, hey, how are you? Or, you know, something like that. It just want to talk. talk. Yeah. And my Facebook isn't going to show him anything about this this podcast at all. Like, my, my personal Facebook is pretty private. Even if you went to my Instagram, mm-hmm. like, I'll put stuff on my stories, but I don't put anything. I don't know. I just don't want anyone to be like, oh, by the way, she has a podcast about murder. And, you know, you're a murderer. <laughs> you murdered someone. You should hit her up. So when that whole thing happened... It was like, part of me, I was not surprised, but I was pissed because of who he did it to. Yeah. And then listening to the trial Hmm. and the prosecution, all that stuff, and he lied and changed his story so many times. Mm. And the fact that he would leave and come back and leave, like, he could have just left it alone because she didn't want anything to do with him. And he kept going back and then he Mm -hmm. was like, did what he did. And then he left again. If enough people want to hear it, we will do a special on Patreon. That's the only place I feel comfortable doing it. Because mm-hmm. if you want, if he wants to pay to listen to it, so be it. But we'll take your money. <laughs> he doesn't have a. I mean, I would assume he doesn't have a job. He he's been out for five days. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling it's going to be a little bit harder to get a job being a convicted felon who murdered someone but i don't know i digress shall i get into my stories for this week yes okay let's do it who is ready for some true crime so i went with three separate people's cases for this week because they're fairly short that way it wasn't just a little blurb um 
and I chose to uh, spread some true crime love to Michigan since we hadn't done anything about Michigan yet. And thank you to all the people in Michigan who have been listening. They have been listening. I have seen that. We see you. The first missing person from Michigan I'm going to go over is her name is Tonya Renee Stiles, a.k.a. Renee Whitehill. Uh, her birthday is June 19th, 1976. Being that these are older, Kate, all three are kind of a few years older at least, so some of their earlier life was hard to find details about, but I did what I could. Um, Tonya had her struggles. Her childhood was troubled, and she spent some time in foster care, but she was adopted by her foster parents, James and Betty Whitehill, at age of nine. And the fact that her name is Betty Whitehill has nothing to do with Betty White's death. I actually already had this on my list of people before that. It was just, just a weird coincidence. It, it just caught me off guard when you you said Betty, but then after yes. White White Hill. Hill. Yes, it was. I caught me off guard when I was doing my report. I'm like, oh, that's super weird. So, but yeah. So they adopted her when she was nine. Friends remember the girl they knew as Renee. So different people at different times in her life either called her Tonya or Renee. But remembered her as a loud smartass who was blunt, hilarious, and always game for a party. They hey, laughed. That sounds like me. <laughs> I'm well, loud. They laughed about freezing bras, sneaking cigarettes, and streaking at a birthday party. And then one friend even remembered that Renee got into some trouble for ending an essay in school with a line from the Beastie Boys. You have to fight for your right to party. <laughs> I think that's pretty fabulous. Um, she did graduate high school in 1995. She was approximately 18 when she and Lee Gorzen had their son, Nathan. She later met and married a man named Jason Stiles, and they had a daughter named Ayla. Jason and Tonya did divorce in 2009, but... They seem to have a good relationship. Um, it mentions both children and both of the fathers seem to be able to work together and stuff. Uh, Nathan was 16 and Ayla was 8 or 9. There was conflicting information um, when their mother vanished. Tonya was 34 years old when she was last seen at her home on Orban Road in Grass Lake, Michigan on November 18th, 2010 at 8.45 p.m. She lived with her boyfriend, Scott Cassidy, and a male roommate at the time that was never named in my research. The roommate said he fell asleep on the couch for about an hour, and when he woke up, she was gone. There was no note. None of her belongings were missing. Nothing like that. She didn't own a vehicle, and she didn't have a cell phone. It was her boyfriend, Scott, that reported her missing to authorities... And it was said that she and Scott did argue on the night of her disappearance. I'm not sure if he admitted that or if the roommate said that. Six days after Tonya went missing, so on November 24th, Scott was arrested and charged with auto theft. He allegedly stole a van from a security company in Jackson, Michigan called Comtronics. And he was already on probation for weapons and drug-related offenses. 
Scott was also convicted in 1997 for a home invasion. Um, he was interviewed about her disappearance, but, quote, no more than any boyfriend would have been in a similar situation. So they didn't have super eyes on him, just did the typical questioning. Um, I guess police did want to look further into it, just because it was a fresh investigation. But a little over a week after he was arrested, while he was in custody from the auto theft, Scott Cassidy hung himself in his jail cell. He left a note titled his last will and testament and also in it he claimed to have had nothing to do with renee styles's tonya styles's disappearance writing i hope you are okay wherever you are i love you okay and he also in the letter expressed his dislike for tonya's parents james and betty and then had also said something good about her children saying they were beautiful okay but why well, take would, your own life if you have nothing to do with it? And you're just arrested for stealing a vehicle? Yeah, right. I thought that was an extreme reaction to the thing as well. Yeah. Uh, Lisa G. Cram, a detective at the time of the occurrence, said in 2011, I feel like we lost any chance of getting any unanswered questions answered at that point. So obviously, you know, she, yeah. they had been living together, I believe it said a year and a half. They were clearly together a while and close and, and would know maybe like ins and outs or enemies or anything like that. And, and they're always the first one to be looked be, at. And, yeah, be a yeah. suspect, but yeah. they didn't really hardly had a chance to. Well, although... Sonia had been dissatisfied with her life and had talked about leaving, uh, which was said by a couple people, including her ex-husband, Jason. Uh, her loved ones don't believe she would have abandoned her children. That ex-husband, Jason, was quoted as saying she always talked about leaving, but friends and family agree with police that she probably met with foul play. Jason also was quoted as saying he didn't believe they... I'm assuming he meant the police didn't look into it as much as they could have. Okay, so Jason, mm. the ex-husband, mm-hmm. is saying, oh, she talked about leaving, like just getting I, up and leaving? I, I guess. She didn't have a job at the time, so, I mean, it would be easier to leave, but when you have two smaller children, well, not Nathan wasn't super small, but two children that friends and family all said that she loved very much. It would be strange for her to just walk away. It was reported also that she had an alcohol problem in the past, but had reportedly been sober at the time of her disappearance for quite some time. So hopefully, you know, it wasn't some fall off the wagon type right bender deal. On the seven-year anniversary of Tanya's disappearance, friends and family held a memorial service. Red Roses sat on a table surrounded by candles. And her grandson that she's never met, Brecken. I love that name. And it's really cute. Was said to have enjoyed the cake they had as he had purple frosting smeared on his face. As, you know, little ones tend to do. At the service, neither of her children addressed the group about their mother, her son stating that he didn't think that he could. It, was like it just would be too much to 
to do and try to get through. As memorials typically do, they had picture collages displayed. And the pictures showed just how alike Tanya and her daughter Ayla look, having the same hair and smile. Her son Nathan's paternal grandmother, Susie Gorzin, was quoted, I feel very rich for having known her. And then another friend of the family, Jeff Murray, said, we all know Tanya is in heaven. Tanya's adoptive parents, James and Betty, said that they were unfortunately moving forward, trying to have her officially declared deceased so they could claim any benefits for the the daughter, Ayla. Yeah. The age that she went missing was 34, which now she'd be 45. She was reported to be between five foot four and five foot eight inches tall, between 130 and 150 pounds. She's a Caucasian female, blonde hair or strawberry blonde and brown or blue eyes. I'm not thrilled with that, but I found different reports with that. Did they not know what color her eyes were? I am not sure. And honestly, the pictures that you can find, it's kind of hard to tell. They could be kind of dark. Are they hazel? Kind of blue. Maybe. Maybe hazel would be a a good call. Because I feel like blue, like having blue eyes... Or having brown eyes are two completely different things. Like, I have blue eyes. Mm-hmm. Mine never look brown. But, like, maybe if they're hazel, they could get some hints of brown in it. Depending how the light's hitting Yeah, and, and what she was wearing. Yeah, I, I was looking. I'm like, um, one says this and one says that. And those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. But um, she also has an inch-long scar on her leg, a birthmark on her upper lip, and a tribal art tattoo covering her entire back for, you know, distinctive markings. Her ears are pierced. Another thing they listed just for, you know. And she may go by the name of Renee Whitehill. They do periodic searches of woods and things in the area. And after one of these said searches, um, one of the volunteers said, I'd say we did a damn good job. No results other than Renee bringing us all together to come back to reality. Life is tough. So is walking in the woods. We push on, even when we feel the burn, and that's because we have hope. I believe we are making a difference because what we did this weekend gave those who couldn't attend hope as well. Hope is contagious, and we will find her, even if it takes us forever. I hope they do. I know. At least some closure if anybody has any information about tanya or renee depending on how you go with that Uh, michigan state police the jackson post their phone number is 517-780-4580 if you are loving our podcast please make sure you give us a rating on spotify and on Apple podcast. It'd be greatly appreciated. Let us know what you think by hitting that five stars. Thank you. Have a good day. The second case I'm going to go over. In 1978, Mavis Klaus had her seventh child, seventh of ten. His name was Jacob Cabanaugh, who went by Jake. The 10 children in the family said the childhood and formidable years were filled with laughter. Uh, When he was about three, I guess, he was a little kind of feisty little brother. He shoved an older sister, Sarah, 
right name, wrong spelling, into a river, which she, I guess, giggled while she was recounting this tale and said, since then, I haven't went swimming very often. I'm not much of a water person. She said, smiling and laughing, as apparently she had gotten caught in the current after he pushed her in. Oh, no. I mean, it was probably like the Makokota that it wasn't like wicked deep or anything, but still. Still. Yeah, I probably wouldn't like water either. Another of Jake's sisters, Sandra Cranson, also laughs, remembering him and explaining that he always kind of reminded her of Jack the Pumpkin King from Nightmare Before Christmas because he was tall and skinny, he had broad shoulders, and he kept a very closely buzzed hairdo. So, you could see that. Picturing him right now. Right. All of the family agrees that he was a joker, describing him as fun-loving and always smiling and, quote, just a good kid. There was no drugs in his life. He wasn't an alcoholic. He just didn't get into trouble. He wasn't a shy or loner-type individual either. He loved being around people and to be able to share experiences with them. At some point, again, the before his disappearance, details weren't super easy to get a hold of. At some point, he married a woman named Rachel and had two children with her, but they later divorced. He was attending Northwestern Michigan College for technical science, and he was also in the Army National Guard, and he had a job at Dave's Garage, which is located in Traverse City. As a mechanic, he had quite the investment in tools, as mechanics generally do, like approximately $20,000 worth of tools. Okay. So, Sounds like my brother. Right, and not something you would generally just walk away from. Right. March 31st, 2010, Jake worked his shift at Dave's Garage and then met up with his friends to play Frisbee golf at Hickory Hills, which is a discourse in uh, Traverse City. His friend Gary Wittig was there and said everything seemed normal and that Jake was in great spirits. Jake was then invited by his friends to a party or the bars, depending on where I was reading, after they finished playing, but Jake declined, telling them he had to finish some homework for his college classes, and his college graduation was only a couple weeks away, or a few weeks away, I should say. So Jake dropped off his friend Gary at approximately 7.30, and supposedly was heading home, where he lived with his mother, in a town called Gron. But Jake never made it, and actually none of his friends or family have seen him since. But oddly enough, that's not the last indication of Jake and his actions. His bank card was charged at approximately 9 p.m. for a small purchase in Buckley, but the clerk doesn't remember Jake or whomever it was that actually used the card. Like at a gas station? Yeah, just something little... And then going through that night, or early morning, I should say, on April 1st, 2010, at 1 a.m., Jake called into an automated system to indicate he was still enrolled in college community classes, some sort of attendance type for maybe for finals or I don't know, but it was some sort of automated thing, and it showed his phone made a call, and that his phone was pinged for that call in Oklahoma 
So, like, pretty south at this yeah. point. An hour after that, so 2 a.m., Jake himself is on camera at a gas station in Matawan, Michigan, and using his bank card. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. So his cell phone was pinged, calling the college's automatic phone number in Oklahoma, but then he was seen... An hour later, back in Michigan. Now, I mean, I don't know how far that is, but I'm assuming... It's more than an hour? I I didn't map it, and I should have. I mapped some other things, but I I was like, what the hell? Um, But family confirmed that it was indeed Jake on the video footage from this gas station. And the footage did show enough that um, you could tell that he was alone and no other vehicles seemed to be following him. Okay, where was he? Okay, where in Oklahoma? It just said Oklahoma. The couple of reports I saw about it just said his phone pinged in Oklahoma. And then where was he seen on? Matawan. M-A-T-T-A-W-A-N. 13-hour drive. So Oklahoma to there is 13 hours and 43 minutes. Now, I don't know where in Oklahoma he was, but that's just to get into Oklahoma's 13 hours. There you go. Yeah. You're welcome. And then it gets better, though. Another charge on his card at another gas station, this time for $30, occurred in Fort Worth, Texas. A few more hours later, in Sweetwater, Texas, which that is over a 1,000 miles from his home in Traverse City, someone purchased another $30 in gasoline. And I saw conflicting reports about the camera footage. Two sources said that it showed Jake and then two sources said it wasn't conclusively Jake. Um, In the meantime of all of this, I guess Jake didn't actually have the funds that the card was being charged for, but he had overdraft coverage, which sounds like a shitty thing to even mention. But it indicates that like they were trying to say in these reports that he didn't have the money to just go off and start a new life. You know what I mean? Right. Because I was right on my wall. That's fucking rude. Who cares if he had the money or not? But, if but the whole I mean, point you're is not going to gonna, like get up and leave with no money. Right. Didn't take any clothes. Didn't take, I mean, literally nothing was missing from his home. And if you were going to do that, this is just from me watching many true crime documentaries is, or in movies, TV shows, you're going to take cash so there's no trace of you going back like to different places and so they if you don't want to be found you're going to make it so that you're not found right but you're not going to use your debit card or whatnot in all these different places so they can track you but on the other hand if he didn't have the cash and the only way he could do anything was to use the card right but then but it's all very weird it's bizarre yes Um, the only link to Texas that any of his family or friends could speak of is that one of his brothers was stationed in Fort Hood. Um, just past 12 a.m. on April 2nd, so he went missing 7.30, well, the last person saw him 7.30 on March 31st, so a little over a full day later, right? Yeah. A week, 
You said April second. Oh, second. I thought you said seventh. Oh no, second. Just past midnight on April second. Jake's license plate was ran by an officer in Hollister, Missouri. It didn't say what for. It's um, all over the place. And then about 3 a.m., a Washington County Sheriff's Department deputy in Arkansas also ran his plate number. He saw Jake's car parked at a Brentwood rest area along US 71 with Jake question mark or at least someone sleeping inside. I mean, I guess it ran it, car wasn't stolen, called it good, and let him be. And he wasn't reported missing at this point? I guess not. Or even if, well, I think they tried to, but since it was only a little over a full day, I know. I think it's so dumb that you can't be like, no, I know this person. They're they're not just gallivanting around. Something's wrong. Which, I know this is not like the same but the fact that amazon has not reached out or tried to put out a missing report for me since i have not (laughs) bought anything in eight days i was like what the hell is happening (laughs) no i have not bought anything from amazon in eight days and i buy something from amazon every day i find something i'm like oh i need that and 2022 goals not resolution goals I'm not <laughs> buying stuff I don't need. I'm not doing any spending online. Don't you think Amazon's like, hey, this is weird. We haven't heard from her in eight days. Nothing. Not a phone call. Nothing. Rude. Heartless. So where is Jake Cavanaugh? One police theory is that he up and left his life for Texas or Mexico but none of his family or friends believe that to be the case. He apparently loved his job. I mean, $20,000 worth of tools. You gotta love being a mechanic. And also, he's almost done with school. Right, I know. Um, he also loved being in the guard. And most importantly, he loved his two boys. Jake's own father wasn't very present in his life while he was growing up and whatnot. And I guess he had sworn to always be there for his sons. He was also on good terms with the boy's mother, Rachel, and was up to date on child support payments. Uh, She was actually helpful and cooperative during the investigation. For example, his phone was actually in her name, and she had no problem turning over records and whatnot to be searched. Um, The entire year before Jake's disappearance, he never once made a call to Texas. They looked through all of the calls the whole year before, and there was no contact to Texas. It's just so weird. Right? And why would he just, you know, he would not go out with his friends, like, after, and said, I have to go home. I have to finish up stuff because I'm almost done with school. Mm -hmm. And then just be like, oh, I'm going to disappear. Yeah. I'm going to go to Mexico. Uh, Rachel said that she's sad for their two boys and that they miss him terribly. They talk about him and pray a lot for him. And she obviously doesn't want them to forget about their dad. His sister, Sandra, told police that Jake had just been at her house uh, a few days before he disappeared, working on a college paper, probably the same one, and that there were no indications of excessive stress 
or any other things that would lead her to believe that he would just walk away from his life. Quote, he's the guy you'd call when you have car problems. He built his mom a back deck. Did he have any enemies? Not that I'm aware of. He was a very compassionate person. So what if the wrong person asked, for him, asked him for a ride? Jake's best friend, Ken Berenger, agrees that Jake wouldn't have just skipped town. Quote, I've known Jake for 10 years, and this is not the Jake I know. We spoke almost every day. My family loved him. Jake was always smiling and never seemed to be stressed. If he had problems, he would have told me. But he was in the National Guard, a great soldier. He was going to college, and he was a hard worker at Dave's Garage. Plus, he talked about his sons all the time and was very involved in their lives. So with theory that is popular with his friends is that Jake may have been asked, like, last minute to help somebody. And since he was a nice guy, maybe he tried to help whoever it was. And bad intentions were from that person. It would explain that he didn't take any clothes, any belongings. They said his phone charger was still at home. Like he, It didn't seem like he planned on being gone very long. On February 21st, I believe of the next year, so 2011, so almost 11 months after he went missing, Carfax data on Jake's Chevy Malibu was forwarded to the National Insurance Crime Bureau. This was from a location in Mexico. Likely an impound yard, but details were not obtainable. And it stated, the current status of the vehicle is unknown. And they didn't go down there? And like... I don't know if it was because Is he in Mexico. the trunk of this car? And That's what the, I'm the, thinking. The report also states, it is believed the car was crushed or destroyed. What? That's evidence. Well, by the time it got through all the bits and pieces to get to where the report was made from, it might already been crushed anyway. Not that I'm saying that's obviously not right, but I don't know. Uh, two years after that, in August 2013, Rachel, Jake's ex-wife, called the assigned detective at the time. She informed him that $1,500 was deposited in her bank account from friend of the court, like if that was their name, like friend capital court capital. So like writing a check Weird. out to cash kind of, but the opposite. Right. When she called their office, she was told the money was from the Army National Guard thrift savings plan of which Jacob Cabanaugh was a member. And if Jacob directed the savings plan to send her money, that would obviously mean he was still alive. Then in May 2014, defectives, <laughs> detectives learned that someone had filed a 2013 Michigan tax return in Jacob Kavanaugh's name. Uh, the detectives sent a search warrant to the state's treasury department to figure that out. Authorities discovered that someone named Kent, I honestly don't know how to pronounce it, unless it was typed wrong in the report I was reading, it's spelled H-S-I-E-H. Say. You Kent, got me. with a Houston, Texas address, had filed for the return. Detectives what? reported the filing to the FBI, who said the return had been fraudulently filed, obviously, via a series of shell retail... 
derp, derp, derp. Very, wow. First drink, Sarah. Via a series of Shell real estate companies. In 2015, Grand Traverse County Probate Court petition did declare Jacob Cabanaugh as deceased, which was only five years, and I felt like that was short. I thought it was like seven was generally the minimum. I don't know. Not like I've looked into it, just shit I've watched and heard. Jacob Cabanaugh would be turning 44 this year. He's between 5'10 and 6'2, and at the time of his disappearance, he weighed between 150 and 175 pounds. Jake has brown eyes and short, buzzed short, brown slash black hair, because he is Native American, uh, specifically Ottawa and Chippewa Indian descent. Jake was last seen wearing his work clothes, which consisted of a gray jacket with Dave's Garage printed on it, a white t-shirt underneath it, dark blue or gray pants, and brown work boots. He was driving his 2002 silver Chevy Malibu, plate number BKQ4107, which had damage along the front passenger side. Anyone with information about Jacob Cabanaugh is asked to call the Grand Traverse County Sheriff's Department Detective Bureau, 231-995-5000. The whole money being deposited, and they're saying, like, if it's from the Army, he has to be alive to do that, that is really just... I mean, it got um, me. Unless... It, uh, this is obviously purely speculation. Unless someone had a guilty conscience and knew how to, like, Do if it. it was like a guard buddy or something that maybe knew what happened to him, or if there was an accident, and yeah, like, still got someone knew something somehow. I mean, they have to know. But yeah, all that back and forth with the camera footage and his bank card and his phone and. And that's why, like, if maybe he did pick someone up, they wanted a ride, he's like, sure, I'm going this way, something happened, and they kind of, like, they didn't kill him, but, like, he was alive for a little bit, and then that's when, like, that vehicle, if they found it, is he in the trunk? Yeah, I would hope not. Very strange. That is strange. Okay, so the third and final missing person for today's episode. Robert Allen Dale Jr., or Bob, was born on November 3rd, 1962. Information about his childhood and adult life before his disappearance was fairly scarce until I found the Facebook page dedicated to him titled Find Bob Dale. And I told you... Weeks ago, I had messaged them saying I was going to do a, you know, thing on here. And they were like, okay, cool. And then earlier this week, I sent them another message. And I, I said, hey, just so you know, the time has come. Basically, it, next week's episode, we'll have information about Bob on it. Like, is there anything you could tell me about his childhood or anything? So they actually offered to call me. So I actually got to talk to. Oh, cool. Yes, I, I got to talk to. I know. I didn't tell you. Um, I got to talk to one of his brothers and the Scott and Scott's wife, Kathy, on the phone uh, the other night. Um, so Bob was the first. And, go I, ahead. I hate to interrupt you, you but 
um, since you did or you know put something out on Facebook and Instagram, mm-hmm. I did search on Twitter for Bob Dale missing, mm-hmm. and I cannot find anything besides like no one's talking about it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's like a missing like something that they could also do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been some news channels that mentioned this in 2014. Okay. And the last one was August of 2021. There's not even 10 tweets about it. Yeah. With there not being anything on Twitter, hopefully we can drum up some conversations. Right. what I'm trying to say. Which, and I can obviously link the Facebook pages in the show notes and stuff. Um, but there is a Facebook page for Tanya and there is one for Jacob, too. Tanya's hasn't actually had any new posts in a few years. Jacob's, I guess, maybe the first time I searched it, I spelled it wrong because I didn't find one at all. And then the other day when I was trying to find something else, I, I was like, oh, crap, there is one. But Find Bob Dale was, was very active, just a short scroll. It was it was all very new, active posts. Um, so I wasn't surprised that they responded. I was surprised that they were willing to to call me though so that was nice cool um but bob was the first of four quite typical midwestern boys all playing hockey which hockey is not like all the way common but all the boys playing sports including hockey football while they were growing up also enjoyed hunting and fishing Uh, there was only approximately two to four years between each of the boys so as you might imagine that lent to a very close-knit family life And even as the boys grew into men, the whole family still liked to do things together, not just holidays and the, you know, standard have to see your family things, but hanging out on a Saturday or going hunting and fishing together. Bob did not do drugs and he only enjoyed like an occasional beer. He wasn't one of the guys that liked to hit up the bars all night. Um, Scott and Kathy also told me that Bob was an artist, which was not something you would necessarily pin for a outdoorsy man, you know, but he liked to draw and write poetry. He even wrote a poem about his father and the, the gap of 25 years between successful deer hunts that his father had. Okay. Um, Bob submitted it to and had it published in the magazine Outdoor Life. Oh, cool. Right? I tried to find that. I should have asked them if they had a, like, could copy and paste it or, like, email it to me. But I wasn't thinking when I was on the phone with them. But I tried to find it on the internet and I was not successful. Um, Bob served in the Navy for a while. He was stationed in San Diego, California on the USS Henry B. Wilson. Scott told me that Bob was a hard worker and motivated with a kind heart. He had been working on getting his own contracting business going while he was still working his current employment. So he was trying to do his own thing on the side um, and wanting to go out on his own with that in the future. He was also said to be a very well put together dresser, like not super fancy and stuff, but he just liked to look nice and presentable at all times. I like that. Yeah. Um, Bob married a woman named Christy, and they had three boys of their own. Robert, so that would be a Robert III, Devin, and Connor. Bob's father worked at a prison 
um, the Kinross Correctional Facility, which is located in Kinchlow, Michigan. Sorry, Michigan, if I pronounced that incorrectly. Interestingly enough, this prison used to be an Air Force base. Okay. I was like, huh, I guess it would have been secure when it was an Air Force base. Yeah. So, all right. His brother Scott said that just the night before Bob went missing, Bob had uh, received a phone call informing him that he was hired on at the prison as well. So he was kind of wanting to change his daytime job while he was still trying to get his contracting stuff going. And I guess he excitedly called his parents to tell them the news. So the night Bob Dale went missing was Saturday, May 18th, 1996. He and his wife, Chrissy, attended a wedding reception in Salt St. Marie, which is in the eastern upper peninsula of Michigan, specifically in the area of Six Mile and Mackinac Trail. Witnesses saw Bob getting into his van with his wife, Christy, who I guess was in the driver's seat, sometime between 11.10 p.m. and midnight, which there was conflicting times in the different reports I looked into. It was believed that they would be heading to the downtowner bar where the other guests were were relocating to as the reception was ending. After hours, basically. Yeah. A source published just last year states that Bob's wife, Christy, had in multiple interviews over the years of the investigation stated that Bob was with her downtown at that bar. Since Christy said Bob was with her downtown the last time she knew his whereabouts, after she called to report Bob missing on the morning of May 20th, that's the area the authorities focused on was the downtown area. Both land and the canals that were in the area. So there was a whole water aspect of searching okay so i'm confused Hmm. the wedding reception was the 18th the 18th yes so what what happened on the 19th for for a day and a half before she called it in yeah i don't know okay so did anyone else see him at the bar that night on the 18th oh you just wait okay okay so both the land and canals in the area were searched extensively but turned up nothing Early on, a witness did claim to have seen Bob outside of the bar, but later that person recanted their statement. This published source uh, also states that with continued investigation, family and authorities don't give much credence to Bob actually having been at the downtowner bar, as no one else claimed to have seen him either inside or outside. Did they see her? The wife? Um, I guess it doesn't say that. Uh, the, the source also goes on to say that Christy changed her story more recently. Okay. Saying that she couldn't specifically remember the last time she saw Bob because, quote, there are pieces that I don't remember. She also said Bob had passed out drunk in the van and doesn't know when he must have gotten out. If this was like an after hour place from the wedding reception, other people that they know would have been there so that if. Either she was there, both of them, whatnot, they would have been like, yeah, they, but I get it, it's a wedding, people are drinking, but still. Scott did tell me that throughout these years and the investigations and whatnot, they did rule out that story of Bob being passed out in the van. I'm not sure if that goes towards people didn't see him drinking very much or just the fact that no one could 
actually say that they saw him like that besides Christy. He also told me that Bob had zero enemies and at most had one coworker with like maybe a strained relationship, but this was also ruled out of being anything of importance during the investigation. Um, Cause I mean, honestly, who doesn't have a strained work relationship at times, but the police did look into this guy and they were good with it. The current detective, which is the fifth detective as this has been going on, it will be 26 years this year. When, okay. When did he... May 18th of 1996? Six. Yes, 96. 26 years? Mm-hmm. So that's why last oh. year was the 25th, so they kind of had a resurgence in people talking and stuff on medias and whatnot. But yes, the current detective assigned to Bob Dale's case is Daryl Harp. Scott and Kathy both said that Detective Harp has been really great to work with. All detectives had been, but spoke very highly of, of Daryl Harp. The entire time of the investigation, the police have had a good relationship with the family, each doing their own investigating and questioning, but also able to coordinate at times when needed, swap information and whatnot. Scott said that he and Kathy have personally interviewed hundreds of people over the years, hoping to find answers. He said about two years ago, they received a pretty big tip and even other evidence that was looked into kept circling them back to this tip, indicating that it is very credible. So that's a good thing. He couldn't really tell me details about it, but just said that it was very promising. I was told that 10 to 15 divers have gone in the different canals searching for Bob's remains, but have continuously found nothing. What sucks, and this is me saying this, nothing to do with any sources, but what sucks is they focused all downtown because that's where... The wife that's said they where, were. Yeah, and the other witness and stuff. But there's about... 9 to 14 minutes of driving, depending on, like, the traffic and lights and stuff, between the reception location and the the downtowner bar. So there's a stretch of area that something could could have happened or whatnot, and then maybe someone went back and, you know, God forbid, if somebody killed him or dumped him somewhere, then they could have gone back later if the heat was all downtown. They never searched... Anything? I mean, I'm sure they did later, but not at first because the indications were that he was downtown. Later, it came out that 11.30 p.m. on the night Bob went missing, a call came in to Michigan State Police about a disturbance around the area of Five and a Half Mile and Mackinac Trail. The caller stated that he heard a male and female arguing. This wasn't originally included in Bob's case file as there was no one at the location by the time police responded that could very well likely have been bob and someone it wasn't thought much about because there wasn't anybody when the police mm-hmm. got there to file any reports or he anything wasn't missing at that point and that's you um, scott told me that about five or six years after bob's disappearance their parents robert senior and jeanette bought a cemetery plot for Bob next to their own, which I couldn't say that people our age do it now, but I know real adults generally used to 
pre-buy mm-hmm. their cemetery plots. Yep. Which these plots were in a cemetery near the family cabin. That way they could eventually lay him to rest with family and at a place he knew and enjoyed. Unfortunately, Bob's father passed from cancer in September of 2007. And the following May, his mother Jeanette passed from cancer as well. Scott and Kathy both said that Bob's disappearance and the stress of a, you know everything, the situation, definitely wore on them as it would anyone, but probably mm-hmm. make them weaker than they would have been in other circumstances. So now Bob's parents lay side by side, waiting to welcome their oldest son back to them. But for now, Scott, Kathy, and other of Bob's family members, including Scott and Kathy's oldest daughter, will continue to search for answers, and hopefully we'll soon be able to bring Bob home. Robert Bob Allendale Jr. is described as five foot seven inches tall, weighing approximately 170 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes, dimples, and sporting a thick, dark mustache. He was last seen wearing a bright yellow polo shirt, black dress slacks, and deck shoes that may have had lug soles, which is like a bulky kind of sole. If you know anything about Bob's disappearance, or if you were the caller that night that reported the couple arguing or know something about those circumstances, please contact Salt St. Marie Police Department, 906-632-3344. I have a question about Christy, the wife. Mm-hmm. Nothing? That most recent article that I saw from last year that I cited a couple times earlier. The writer of that article said that they reached out for her for comment and then she never replied. She's still in the general area, so it's all their boys and the rest of the family is all in the still same general area. It just it's she was the last person to see him. I hate to say it and I I don't want to like point well, fingers, but it well, points okay. to her. Well, I've said it before. It's First, typically the spouse, so I... Well, the fact that people from the reception saw him in the vehicle with her and she was driving, and then two days later, a day and a half later, she reports him missing, like it took her that long. Well, and like I don't know if she tried to call ahead of that, but I know a lot of times it seems like the police of any place doesn't want to take a missing person's report until it's X amount of hours later. I get that, but... If she's not talking about it, I don't know. It's just... I did find it strange, personally, that she wasn't involved with, like, the Facebook page. You know, if my husband went missing, I would Like, if they be were at the bar like, together, she was talking to someone, turned around, and he was gone, I would be very, like, if I were her... Where's my husband? Who, yeah, like, like, oh, did you see Bob? Where did Bob go? Like, right. Yeah. Doesn't sound like that's the case. say? There was some aerial view maps. Not super far. Roads, woods, but not uninhabited, if that makes sense. Okay. And they didn't search any of that. Well, they were told he was downtown, so that's where they looked. And then they looked in the canals and all that. It's and sad. he's a grandpa now. They, I think by now there's three grandchildren. He doesn't get to know. Well, I hope people come... F- forward if they have any information honestly special thank you to scott and kathy for speaking with me the other night that was that was an honor so thank you for that yes awesome and um 
I did not realize until now that your hat says stay weird. Is that yeah. so morbid? Um, they say keep it weird. Oh. I just was looking for patches because I bought the hat and the patch separately and I gotcha. ironed it on. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, anyways, again, if you are listening and you like what you hear, Please make sure to leave us a review, whether it's on Apple or Spotify or both, if you could. Um, It'd be greatly appreciated. Uh, We did hit our first milestone this week. We hit 500 downloads, but we are past that now. So thank you so much for everyone who has listened. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at at hometown homicide podcast and on facebook at hometown homicide podcast because we did yes, that this week that's we a thing um also twitter at oat murder i've been tweeting quite a bit lately so that's where you'll find some updates is on twitter at oat murder and sometimes it'll just be silly uh true crime memes or facts or whatnot on instagram or twitter but we do appreciate all of your support we do like to have open conversations so comment let us know what you think you can support us if you would like to better and further the show by going to our patreon at patreon.com slash hometown homicide podcast which brings me to a point that we got our first patron that as promised on the level she paid for she gets a shout out now it's my turn i'm doing all kinds of hand motions so shout out to um cass cassie johnness oh no casey jones it's a casey jones it's a big shout out to her as our first patron love you thank you love you and again if you want to hear the full story of what I mentioned earlier, it will be a Patreon exclusive. I will find some articles, because I actually did search on Twitter and found some. I'll retweet them so you can kind of get a gist. But if you want the story on that, it will be a Patreon exclusive. And either level of Patreon gets early access to the episode the normal weekly episodes so you get a whole day earlier if you're just impatient like me um and then this the higher level that that you know lovely casey jones contributed to she'll get the at least one bonus episode a month which will be the hometown homicide happy hour which we need to discuss doing that because that we need to get that going yes Uh, and if we can send out maybe like a small merch item. Yeah, I need to talk to Tracy and find out how my stickers are coming. My stickers, our stickers are coming. But I talked to him and I was like, yeah, I'll make us stickers. So, yeah. We'll get some like, little thank you stickers sent out. Oh, oh YouTube. Home Town oh, Homicide. Yes, YouTube. Podcast. There's slideshows right now. Uh, we do our best to get them out the same time that the episode's like the audio episodes are released, but sometimes I'm behind on that because it takes a while. So Even if it's a like, a comment, a share, a follow, 
it still helps support us if you and it's exciting it is exciting every time we're both getting all these notifications like oh did you see this oh did you see that yes it's very exciting but all right folks we thank you for listening and thank you for your support remember we want to tell stories to you and not about you so stay safe and this was hometown homicide (laughs) 